this morning as I preach and as we sing, like we're gonna, we always have a time of communion and prayer afterwards for anyone who needs it. And just be asking God, Lord, would you free me from something? Would you have your light to shine on something in my life that needs to be revealed so I can be set free from it this morning? Because um, you have that freedom in Christ. So, so be in a spirit of prayer this morning as I, as I preach. Um, Paul is just saying here, especially in verses 9 through 11 toward the end of our text that Nathaniel read, don't go back. Don't return to slavery. God brought you out of slavery. Uh, it's really, the, the, if you've not read the book of Hebrews or if you have read it, it's still, it's still the message of an entire book in the New Testament. Don't go back, those three words. Uh, don't go back to the old way. Christ is the fulfillment of everything that's, that God has given to his people in the past. Don't return to the shadow. Christ is the reality. It's the, ma- it's the message not just of a book in the New Testament. It's a message <clears throat> of the whole law of the Torah, of the Jewish Torah. Um, don't go back to Egypt. He's brought his people with a mighty hand through no good of their own, slaves, out of slavery, out of the iron furnace, out of bondage, into, he's going to take them to a promised land, into freedom, <clears throat> and into an inheritance, and into their being adopted as his sons and daughters. And he's saying the whole message of the, of the whole Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is essentially um, don't go back to Egypt, advance to worshiping the God of your redemption in the promised land that he is bringing into you as he's making you a people. Um, and that's actually why the law was given in the first place. But, and so the law was given, as one scholar here that I'll read says, the law was not ever given to live by in order to save us. If you think about it, in the order of the Torah, in the order of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, God delivered a people, redeemed a people, brought them out of Egypt first, through no good of their own, covered them with the blood of an innocent lamb slain for them. The angel of death passed over them. He brought them out with a mighty hand, parted the waters, they walked through it on dry land, and then he gave them the law. Not to save them, but to live by because they were already his people. But our tendency is to go back and look to the law to save. And that's what Paul is swinging against this morning. And so what Alec Motier, I think it's Motier, I don't know, Motier is how it's spelled, Motier, um, says in his Exodus commentary, he says, the people were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed, rather it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved. You see? Um, The law was to help them live, not to save them. But in our flesh, we're always going to look to something other than God, whether it's the law that God's given, the good law, or whether it's being irreligious and looking to say, if we're a secular humanist or whatever, uh, and we've said God doesn't exist, but we're going to look to something else other than God to save us. And that's where our enslavement comes from. Anything else that we devote ourselves to and look to to save us is going to enslave us. Even God's good law, it's what Paul's saying here this morning. But Christ alone has done the work to set us free. Don't return to slavery. Live in the freedom that Christ provides. So the first point is simply that our enslavement, our enslavement to the elements, and Paul talks about that in the first three verses, one through three, and then eight through 11 as well. Um, there's no spiritual neutrality. Religious and irreligious alike are enslaved and under the dominion of sin and Satan. So Paul talks about being enslaved to the law, and he basically uses this metaphor, this picture of an heir, a child being an heir to his father's inheritance, 
But while he's still a child, he hasn't yet come into that. It's his, but he hasn't yet enjoyed any of the benefits of that inheritance. So he's being treated essentially like a slave. And he's saying that's what the Israelites were. God's own people who were given the law, um, were sla- they were living like slaves. Though they were heirs, they were living like slaves until Christ came. And that was part of God's plan. They were the heirs of the promises, Romans 9. They were given the oracles of God. They were the heirs of the promises. God calls Israel in Exodus 4 and and in Hosea 11 and elsewhere, my son, they were given sonship. They were given the promises. They were heirs of God, and yet they were living. They were not free. They were not free. So um, Acts 15, 10 through 11 crystallizes this in the New Testament. It's the first book after the Gospels. And Gentiles, non-Jews, are starting to be saved and brought into the kingdom. And, 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 and Jesus is saving these people who are uncircumcised and who are who traditionally, in mass at least, not been part of God's people. And so the, the disciples, the apostles, are having to reach out and go, okay, is this, is this God's plan? They're looking at the Old Testament again. And, and um, it's called the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. And in verse 10, uh, Peter stands up and he says, now therefore, why are you putting, and so they're saying, sorry, they're saying something very relevant to our text, which is, okay, Jesus is saving them, but they need to go back to the Old Testament law and let's at least circumcise them. So Christ has saved them, but it's Christ plus a little bit of the law. And Peter stands up and he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The, the, the law had become a yoke that was so heavy and it had driven them down into the ground and they could not keep it. Verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved, the Jews, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's the same for everyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, man, woman, slave, free, as Paul says in this beautiful text that Cole preached last week, right right above this text that I'm preaching this week, right? Is the law bad then? Is the law bad that it brings enslavement? No. May it never be. On the contrary, it's good because God is good and the law is an, is a, an expression of his character. It's his word. It has to be good. It's a beautiful Beautiful way to live. It shows us what he's like. So if you think about the Ten Commandments, the moral law, do not lie. What does that show us about God? He's honest. He never lies. You can count on what he says. You can take it to the bank every time. His word will be accomplished. It will not return void, right? Um, Do not commit adultery. What does it tell us about God? He's a faithful lover. He's a faithful lover. Uh, Do not murder. God is a life giver. He has given, he's life itself. He has given his own life to make us alive again. He went to the grave to make us alive. Do not cheat. All sorts of rules about marketplace and not having uh, faulty scales and things like that, not cheating cheating people when you're trading in the market. Uh, Do not cheat. What does that tell us about God? God is fair. He he will not cheat. He will never give someone uh, less than they deserve or more, okay? Well, he, he, he does give us more than we deserve, but only because Christ is taken. He's just. Christ has taken what we deserve. So he's, he's just even in that. Even in his grace, he's just, okay? Um, love God with all your heart. That's the biggest command that sort of all the other commands fall under. Does God love God with all his heart? You bet he does. The, 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 in the councils of the Trinity, Jesus the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit is an expression of their love and loves the Son and the Father and is loved by them. And... Um, Have you ever noticed in the Gospels when you look at Jesus and he's always, how much he's always really withdrawing into the wilderness to be alone with his Father, to have that time? Even on the earth, he's so 
loves. He's always drawing near to his Father. Even God, God loves God with all God's heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's, he cannot do anything other than that, and he calls us to that. He is the source of life. And out of that love, he loves us, right? And he calls us into that love. So Romans 7, 7 through 12 is sort of like the premier expression of all this. Romans 7, you don't have to turn there, but he, Paul says this. He says, what then shall we say? Romans is kind of like Galatians on steroids. He's a little less, less um, I don't know if anybody's described it like that ever. Um, he's a little less strident, in the, a lot less strident in the book of Romans, and it's, and, it's, and it's like Galatians on steroids. And in chapter 7, he says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if, yet if uh, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, the law tells me, if you break this, then you're sinning. Um, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's saying, hey, whoa, let's recap. Don't, don't, again, I've just said, I've started with saying the law is good, and then I've said, but it shows me how sinful I am. It actually provokes sin within me. It makes me want to break it. and shows me that I can't help but break it. But hang on, the law's good. The law's good. Shows me my bad. Um, Alec Motier, again, the law is for life, for all of life, and for the balanced life. But we're opposed to God at our core. We're born this way, opposed to God, rebels, wanting to be on the throne instead of God. And so we buck at the bit of God's law in our mouths. We buck at it. Um, I was at the Museum of Natural Science in the IMAX. It's one of my favorite museums. I know my son loves it. He loves the dinos in there. And uh, how great are they? So I was in there probably, I was way older than he was. I was probably in like early high school, long, long time ago. And I was on the top row, and right in front of my feet, there's a little, like a mini rail. And on the rail, I noticed right before the IMAX was starting, there was a sign, a placard, and it said, do not put your feet on this rail. And man, before I saw that, it had never occurred to me. But as soon as I saw that, I was like, wouldn't that make a nice little ottoman? You know, and so... Um, it provoked the law right in front of me telling me not to do something. didn't only tell me, hey, if you do this, it's wrong. It made me want to do it, to break it. And that's what the law in our rebellious state does for us. And that's what Paul's saying much better. Um, it also makes me more accountable to God because now I know that this is sin, breaking this law. Um, this, is, this is going contrary to God's good character. This is how broken I am. Not just on the outside, but on the inside, which is where the outside stuff comes from, as Jesus so brilliantly said, right? All that stuff comes from a nasty, broken, corrupt heart. Who can change that by his behavior? How can that be made well? <laughs> um, so it makes me more accountable to God. I now know what I'm doing. Uh, and if we recall, there's an, I've talked about this before, there's an inward nature there's an inward nature of God's law. It speaks to our, the interior aspect of our obedience, our inner disposition. So it's not just do this, 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 this on the outside. God's law, the perfect law, it, it really it calls us to wholehearted love for God and to do things, not just to do them outwardly, but out of, 
out of a disposition that wants to obey. So the call is so, so one of the ways that I like to talk about this and I have before is that if you just look at the Ten Commandments, there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament. If you just look at the Ten, the Ten Commands that were put on that God actually wrote on tablets, the first and the last both speak to this interior aspect of our required obedience. Love God, you shall have no other gods before me, which is I want to be your first priority in everything from here. And you shall have no, uh, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is, which is basically a summation of the law. Love and love your neighbor as yourself, so love. And then the last command of the ten is do not covet. Now, again, I've said this before, but who, if I'm coveting right now, I'm, right now I'm coveting something. Which of you can tell? Nobody, because it's interior. And what that's doing, starting and finishing, is it's saying all this God cares about from the heart. What does Jesus do when he comes? He says, I'm not giving a new law. I'm going to tell you what the law really requires. And he says, let me, tell you, let me tell you, for instance, that you think you're not, if you haven't slept with somebody else and you're married, you think that you're not committing adultery. Surprise. If you lust after a woman, if you look at her lustfully with that second glance, with that gaze, with that intention, you've committed adultery in your heart. Oh, surprise. If you think that you haven't murdered anybody, because m- most of us haven't, some people have, most of us haven't in society. Um, anger. If you've hated your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. It starts in the heart, and that's what God cares about. And that's where sin comes from. And so who of us can stand before this perfect God and his requirements? None of us. That's what Paul's saying. None of us. The law makes me want to break it, shows me how evil I am, arouses the evil in me, and leaves me without power to change. It thus leaves me dejected and hopeless. Unless I'm a prick, which I, I can tend to be, and I look at the law and I think, I'm actually keeping that stuff. I'm doing pretty well. And I don't have much self-awareness. And then, instead of being dejected and hopeless, I'm really proud and arrogant and scornful of the other dregs who are not keeping the law as well as I am. So it either leaves me dejected and hopeless or proud, arrogant, unapproachable, mean, and angry. Wow, this is what the good law does to us. It enslaves us. Um, The law was thus meant to provide guardrails for the Jews for living well, but mainly it was meant to lead them, to guide them to the law keeper, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, Messiah, okay? And that's what Paul's saying here. So the law in resumption, it's a tutor, it's a manager, it's a guardian, Paul says. It was to point the Jews to Christ, it's to point us to Christ. He says that in chapter 3, 22 through 24, but it's worthless, it's weak and worthless, he says in verse 9, 4, 4, 9, in giving us the power to resist sin or to cancel sin. It can't do any of those things, Okay? Um, worse, and this is where he downshifts before we get to the end of this. This is the end of this point, and then we're going to move on to point two, a much more hopeful point, okay? But we got we to gotta wrestle with Paul here and this slavery that he's talking about. What is our condition without Christ? What is our condition apart from Christ? We have to know, or else the gospel will not shine. We will not appreciate it. Eh, well, that's what will that's be our attitude. But this is what Christ says about the law. So worse than the law, showing us our sin and imprisoning us in that way, it's our prison guard, it's our slave master, not just our tutor. Or guardian. He says the law um, enslaved and enslaves us to what, what's the phrase in verse 3? Elementary principles, but also the Greek there. It's a really, if you read the commentaries, they're divided. I mean, there's a huge, lot of ink has been poured on this phrase. The law was the elementary principles, the first stuff, the ABCs, but Christ is the A through Z. He's like the finisher. He's don't go back to the law, go to what it's pointing to, go to Christ. Don't go back to the tutor, go to the inheritance of sons. Jesus takes you into that. 
So it's an element, the law is an elemental beginning principle that takes us to freedom in Christ. But the phrase can also mean, um, it's the, it, it, is, it can also mean elemental spirits. And Paul elsewhere in Colossians 2 and elsewhere in Galatians talks about this, and it's almost always ambiguous. Um, it can mean both, that the law causes us to um, be enslaved to elementary principles and to think that's the way to salvation and without advancing to Christ, but also to actually be demonically enslaved to elemental spirits. Wow. Okay, so which is it? I think both. Okay, and let me, let me let John Stott, old British preacher, unpack this a bit with this quote. So the word is in the Greek, in case you're interested, stoikeia, and it can mean both, all right? Stoikeia. But how can bondage to the law be called a bondage to evil spirits, he says. That's a question we want to know about, right? Is Paul suggesting that the law was an evil design of Satan? I've already addressed that. Hopefully your answer to that is no, of course not. He's told us that the law was given to Moses by God, not Satan, and mediated through angels, 319. Good spirits, not bad. What Paul means is that the devil took this good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave us, men and women, the Jews. Just as during a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways which his father never intended, so the devil has exploited God's excuse me, good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. Get this. He says this. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. And so in short, false pagan religions, or if you want to think in our terms, irreligiousness, or the New Age, or whatever, Islam, whatever false religion you want to think about, it's not from God. False pagan religion held people in bondage to the elemental spirits, but so did, surprise says Paul, so did adherence to the law insofar as the Jews were looking to it to save. Even, the, even adherence to, to God's good law has held us under bondage, demonic bondage is what Paul says. It's a heavy and a difficult text. And it relates to us, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring up my friend and have you pray for her, because friends, we, if we think there is no spiritual neutrality, and man, so often in the West we can think that we're spiritually neutral, that you know, our, decision, our decisions, uh, they're not going to be for the kingdom of Satan or for the kingdom of God, and maybe we have a little sin problem over here, but it's not that big of a deal. But Paul is saying this is serious stuff. We are at war. Sin means enslavement, and in fact, it means demonic enslavement. Wow. Looking to the law means demonic enslavement. He's saying something shocking, okay? He's saying that basically the Southern Baptist fundamentalist who is at bottom a moralist, meaning I'm basically just living life in a good way that looks good, that's pleasing to God on my own. You know, yes, Jesus, Jesus, I acknowledge he's Savior, but really it's, it comes down to all about doing these things, okay, uh, before God. So the Southern Baptist, I'm just picking on, it could be the Presbyterian, I mean, really, but we're in Southern Baptist country, right? Fundamentalist, who's at bottom a moralist, is just as enslaved by the powers of sin and hell as a Muslim who worships Allah, who, who looks to the Quran and obedience to the Quran to save. Because Paul is saying, adherence to the law to save us binds us under elemental spirits. That is heavy 
stuff. He talks about um, days and months and seasons and years in 410. I'm actually going to skip that just for the sake of time, and uh, we can talk about that later. Is he talking about the Sabbath? Is he talking about or not? You know, is that included in one of the days he's saying? Is he saying it is no longer valid? That's a big question. Um, I would say in short what Jesus said, which is the Sabbath wasn't, we weren't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for us. In other words, um, it's part of a good law that God has given us for our benefit, and it's good to take one day out of seven. Are we required to? No, Christ has fulfilled that for us, but it's part of the way that we work for us to take one day out of seven to worship, to rest, to rejuvenate, to fix our eyes on Christ, to gather together to worship. It's good for us, but should we be stoned and, and stuff if we don't keep it? No, Christ has fulfilled that. He's fulfilled that for us. Okay, so that's, that's, let's put that aside. There's more on that, but um, let's move to the fullness of time. Okay, this is the beautiful, beautiful part of the text. Paul's given us some heavy stuff, but the fullness of time after this enslavement um, to the law and to, to mo- demonic bondage, um, the fullness of time, he just, he just unpacks for us. And there's this big but. We've, got, we've encountered a few big buts um, before, in, even in Galatians, but he says, but, in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. What a beautiful... What a beautiful and massive but. What a beautiful and massive uh, conjunction, right? <laughs> oh, man, it's so good. Um, thank God for it. The fullness of time. G.K. Chesterton, uh, one of my favorite authors of old, I used to read him a lot in, after high school, and he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man, which some people say is his best work. It's up there with orthodoxy. But in The Everlasting Man, he talks about how God, in the fullness of time, prepared the world through something like the Punic Wars, which were wars between Rome and Carthage. He talks in his book about how even through something like the Punic Wars, God and his providence, where um, Rome won but almost narrowly because Carthage of North Africa came and assaulted uh, Rome and the Italian peninsula, and Hannibal was one of the greatest uh, generals of all time. He brought elephants up through the Alps to, to uh, smash down through the Italian peninsula and to smash the gates of Rome. Um, and it was a narrow escape, but Rome ended up winning against Carthage in the Punic Wars. And he talks about how Carthage was, um, was a people full of a people who worshipped Baal, Moloch, Molech. They had child sacrifice. Um, and, and Rome, even in winning against Carthage, both pagan powers, neither one of them Christian. Christ hadn't come yet. They, these weren't the Jewish people. Um, but Rome was a people who believed in the gods of the poets, and that was even fading allegiance to those gods was really kind of a fiction by the time Christ came. And so even in allowing Rome to dominate the Mediterranean instead of Carthage, Chesterton says, God was in his good providence preparing the world for the advent, for the coming of our maker, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was preparing the way through Roman law, through Roman roads, through which travel of the gospel would become quite easy, through the Hellenization, which means the Greekization of Alexander the Great, of culture and language. So everyone had a similar culture and language so that the gospel could be pre- adopted through the Greeks, adopted from the Greeks through Rome, so that by the time Jesus came on the scene, Greek was the lingua franca, just like English is today, and the gospel could be propagated in Greek and everyone could basically understand it and there was a common culture. So God, in the fullness of time, in all these different ways, Chesterton says, uh, is preparing the world for the advent, for the coming of his son. And, And Paul's saying, look, he did that by preparing his own people through the law, by having them under this guardian so that by the time Christ came, they they should have said, oh, we can't keep it, but you have kept it for us. But of course, God did that, he 
accomplished that keeping of the law in a way that none of us could anticipate. Even though it had been written, it was so beyond us. So we crucified him, but he used that to save us, right? Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So not just bringing all people to him of various colors and and creeds and, and, and of all sexes and of all socioeconomic classes, but also he's uniting all the cosmos of heaven and earth. He's bringing a marriage again from that which had been ruptured, God and man, through his son Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. He sent forth his son in the fullness of time. That sent forth is what it sounds like. It means to send on a mission, to dispatch, to send out, or to send off. Think about how far Christ was sent from heaven to earth to be born among poor parents, to live a poor life rejected by those he had made and then crucified. Um, And as surely as God sent his own son out, so he sends we who are in Christ out. And we'll return to that at the very end. But he was born of a woman, J. Gresham Machen, who left Princeton Seminary in the early part of uh, 20th century and went to form a seminary called Westminster, which is still around up in Philadelphia. Um, there was this thing called neo-orthodoxy, and people were pretending to have a full allegiance to um, historic orthodox faith and saying things like, I believe and I have faith, and yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and all these things are true, but they would squeak by these tests of orthodoxy, and do you really believe the word is infallible? It's, uh, it's God's word, it's his breath. And so he, he was looking for a question to pin him down, and his question became, do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, God Almighty, was born of a virgin? Not, the sin was not passed down. He was actually human, and yet without sin. The sin was not passed down through the earthly father. His father was God and is God, and his mother was actually a real human mother. He was born from Mary. So he's fully God and fully man, fully able as God to save us, fully able as man to represent us, as a man to represent men and women and children, anyone who would come to him, to live in our place, to die in our place. Do you believe this. This is what Great Machen would ask, and it is a crucial question, and Paul is here telling us he was born of a woman, just as was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, as theologians call it, the proto-evangelion, the first mention of the gospel, right in the middle of the curse when man and women decided to go their own way and to disobey God and represented us all in their sin and their rebellion against God. Right in the middle of that, in Genesis 3.15, God shows up with a promise, and he says, I will put hatred between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed. You will crush his heel, Satan, this seed that I'm prophesying about, this seed that I'm talking about, but he will crush your head. The first promise of one who would come from a woman. He will be as, as human as Adam was, yet without sin, born of God, fully God and fully man, and he will, his very victory will be a victory that looks like death and that in fact is death. You will get him on the heel. You will strike him, but with that same heel, with that cross, he will crush your head. He will pay for sins. He will be the atoning sacrifice. And he will rise. He's going to leave death in the ground. He's going to leave sin paid for. He's going to leave the serpent vanquished with his head crushed. And he will rise. 
And anyone who looks to him will rise with him, will die to sin, and will rise to new life. And this is what Paul's saying here. He's born under the law, okay? Adam, what theologians, he was born, he was not born into, he was brought into what some theologians call covenant of works, where God said, look, obey me from the heart. You're perfectly able. You're not sold under sin. You're not under bondage. You're able to obey me. Trust me. And at some point, you'll be able to eat from the tree of the, uh, the, the fruit of the tree of life, and you'll be able to live forever in communion with me. And Adam disobeyed God at the tree. Fully able to obey him, Adam disobeyed God. And, he, uh, and we inherited from him, instead of life, death. Jesus Christ, Paul in Romans 5, calls the second Adam. And uh, he says that Adam didn't just, uh, Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived for us. He obeyed, he obeyed the law as we are called to and should, the law which is life, perfectly, from the heart, always wanting to be with God, to please his Father, out of perfect motives, always. That's why when you read the Gospels, he's always saying, go and, and show yourself to them and do, and do it according to the law and do it according to the He's always... Every, he punctiliously and perfectly and from the heart and with great delight obeyed the entire law. He was born under it with its weight on his shoulders and he kept what we cannot. He didn't just die the death that we deserve. He lived the life that we should have from the heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. My old, again, professor, I mention this all the time, in seminary would sometimes start classes by saying, we are saved by works, true or false. And of course, most people, you know, bite the hook and say, no, because we know we're not saved by works. We're not saved by works. But he would say, False. I mean, true, we are saved by works, just not ours. We're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. We're saved by his work for us. We're saved by his death for us. We are not saved by our works. No, friends. It's what Paul's preaching against. It's what I've been preaching against. So he was born under the law. The tree that Adam was to obey at, to obey God's command at, he, he had every advantage and he failed. The tree that Christ had no advantage on, where God forsook him, the very cross, the Roman cross, 2,000 years ago. And he cried out, he obeyed God, not my will but yours be done, from the heart, making himself a sacrifice for sins. He had earned the right to live. He gave that to us, and he took what we deserve, our death on that cross. When we trust in him, we get his perfect obedience, his record of law-keeping, and all the things that he paid for, for our law-breaking. That comes to us. It becomes our inheritance. And that's... The last thing that I want to mention, um, our adoption of sons. But before I do, let me just share one <clears throat> story with you and then finish with our adoption of sons. Just to illustrate this beautiful word about how he redeemed us in the fullness of time he came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, what? To redeem, to agorazo. And um, <clears throat> Christ came to redeem us, which means to purchase. It's an economic term. Um, and what he came to do is, I think, beautifully illustrated in a movie called Broke Down Palace with Claire Danes. Before I saw this movie, it's, it's, it's 99 or something old, right? Most of you probably haven't seen it, but I was not a Claire Danes fan. I'm still not a, you know, I don't go watch what she's in, but I was, I just, like, manifestly didn't really like her as an actress before, but man, this movie changed my, it changed my mind. So she, the short of it is that they're in, she and a friend are in Southeast Asia, and they, two Americans on this trip, and uh, I haven't watched it in a long time, and I didn't review this part, but basically they help a guy get drugs across the border in, let's say it's Thailand or something, and <clears throat> they get caught, 
But Claire Danes actually is totally oblivious, and she doesn't have any, but her friend, she's with her friend, and her friend's the one that's complicit. Her friend is the one that's to blame. So they get locked up in this penitentiary, and then they have all these advocates from America and other places to come and help them try to get out. And they go before, at the end of the movie, this tribunal. And this guy's up there, the judge, he's up there dressed in white with epaulets on and all this stuff and these glasses. And, and basically, their lawyers are ready. They've already made a plea bargain. They've already made, and it's been accepted, this sort of deal. And um, the girl that, that Claire Danes is friends with has all the money, and that's the way that they're able to hire the lawyers. And so she thinks she's about to get out. And then they basically, as the guy gets up on the stand, they just basically say, sorry, things have changed. You're, you're stuck here. And the, the lawyer's like, we had a deal. We had a deal. What? And they start to cuff her and take her away. Like, sorry, girls, you're going to be serving your time, 20 years plus, whatever. And Claire Danes runs out. She runs out, breaks through the guards, runs out onto the floor in front of the tribunal and just puts her arms out and just says, she just starts weeping, just weeping, hits her face and says, hey, look, she says, uh, if, if, if serving time, if justice has to be served and serving time, is what you're looking for. Because the debt has to be paid. Let me serve her time and mine. And, and, and after a bunch of rigmarole, he basically says, he says, you're, you're a good liar. She says, I'm not lying. Just let me serve the time. I'll do both. And, and the tribunal, say, he says, if you are willing to serve her term and yours, your friend is pardoned. And her friend is just astonished because, of course, she knows it's her fault. And she says, look, I'm the one to blame. Blame me. Let me serve both of our time when she's totally innocent. And it's just such an amazing picture of what Christ did on that cross. He looked at the Father and, and he said, we have decided this from before the councils of creation. Man will go astray and I will come. And, and I am begging you, God, and you have agreed. You know that I am innocent, but count me as the guilty one. Let me serve their time. And God the Father says, let it be, because his justice had to be served. And Jesus served the time that we owe for all of our law-breaking. And he took the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Not just the nails, not just the stuff for which the blood flowed, but the stuff that we can't see. The wrath of God. He who knew the eternal pleasure of his Father, the Father turned his face away and poured out his wrath and made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Wow. This is what Jesus has bought for us, and this is how free we are in Christ. How will you use that freedom? You who are free in Christ. Will you go back to the law and look to it to save you, look to your own performance to save you? Or will you continue to look at Christ and live out your freedom to build his kingdom? Or will you use that freedom that he has dearly bought to build your kingdom? Hmm? Christ has set us free to keep the law, to love God and our neighbor with all we are from the heart. That, if we do that, we have kept the law and we are actually able in Christ to do that. Not because we have to, but because we, we can. It's our natural response. And if we're not there and if we stumble and fall, which we will, it is our inheritance to be able to ask, Lord, give me that desire. Lord, help me to love you from the heart. Help me to lay my life down for my friend. You've laid your life down for me. I have, I've walked into an, an entire inheritance in you. I have everything I need. I have your full approval. I have all the riches of heaven that are mine now and manifestly in the life to come when you remake all things.
What else do I need, Lord? Um, our adoption as sons, what am I going to touch on? This needs to be quick. Let me just say this, a couple things and then we're done. A couple things and we're done. Verses 6 and 7 and 9, our adoption as sons. Let me just say that most people, when they, when they think about the Christian life, uh, and we do this here at Sojourn. Um, we love the cross so much, and we love the expiation, that theological term, the wiping away of our sins because Christ became our sin. It's been paid for, and that's so good. We should love that, but we often stop there. But what Paul is saying here is that's not a period. It is, it is something that Christ did. He cleared you of your sin and gave you his righteousness and his heart and his spirit by which you cry, Abba, Father, because he has come to make you fully sons and daughters of the king. Now, notice how Paul doesn't say sons and daughters, and here's why. So some have called adoption the crown jewel of the Christian life. Let's not stop it. Hey, he's paid for my sin. He's brought us into all the rights of a son. He doesn't say in daughters because in this culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was the son, the eldest, who got the lion's share, the, the ma- major portion of the inheritance, and he was responsible for the family. And he is the elder son, and he has brought us into his own inheritance, which is why Paul uses the word Abba, because Abba is an Aramaic word. It's not Hebrew. It's not Greek. And Aramaic was the lingua franca of this area um, in the ancient Near East at the time. It was Jesus' first language. It was his mother tongue. It's what he spoke day to day. Abba. What is Abba? Abba is what Jesus called his daddy, his father. And Paul is saying, you have that same right because you are now in Christ. And everything that he has access to, to, you have full access to. The name on his lips for God the Father who made all of us and who loves all of us and who knows our sin and our weaknesses and our failings and still loves us with a perfect love. He is your father as much as he is Christ's father. To be fully known, look at verse nine. Paul says, he, says, he talks about knowing God and then he says, but now you have come to know God or rather, this beautiful clause, or rather to be known by God. Okay? We have a God who our identity is such that we are not only fully known intimately, not just with his cognition. He knows everything there is to know with his cognition. This is an intimate, relational, accepting, come to the table, you're my son or my daughter, knowing. We have a God who fully knows everything about us and loves us with a perfect love. Isn't that our heart's desire? Isn't that what we run after, all the little idols that we're constantly chasing? Isn't that at base what it's about? It's about, I want to be known really for who I am without having to cover up anything, without having to hide any of my shame, any of the things that I'm really ashamed about. I want to be fully known and still fully loved and accepted. That's it. And that is what Paul is saying. You are known by God. Your inheritance is the very inheritance of Christ. You have everything you need. Will you live out of that freedom rather than returning to the slavery of the world. It promises freedom. But freedom to be able to do what you want, to live how you want to do, Paul says, it's slavery. Even the freedom that the law, uh, that we go to when we say, I'm going to obey this, this, and this, and measure up, that's slavery, Paul says. It's not just the slavery that we can see, but it's also not just a subjective slavery of feeling guilt, but it's also a satanic slavery. Paul saying, Christ came to set you free from all that. Um, you're an heir. You share the throne with him. Um, Amen? Okay, let's pray.